This week on the Sports Initiative podcast, I sit down with PhD student Megan Hill. Studying out of the University of Bath, she discusses her research into growth and maturation, bio-banding and how it can have an effect on elite sporting environments, as well as best practice in the support of young athletes going through growth. I hope you enjoy. So first of all, Megan, appreciate you doing this. Um, how are things? How's everything going? I'm guessing how was it handing in your work? Yeah, it was good. Um, it was quite anticlimactic handing in in lockdown and doing it from home rather than having the printed version to hand in. But um, yeah, it felt good. And I've had a few weeks off to sleep um, in lockdown, which has been nice. But yeah, and thanks for having me. No problem. So I guess uh, for people that don't know you or don't know your background, you just want to explain kind of your background and then how you've got into your thesis area and research area, etc. Yeah, so um, I've always been involved in sport as a kid and I used to be quite a competitive swimmer, um, but I was always the smallest one on poolside, always the littlest one. Um, and so I kind of had an understanding from like my coaches and my parents always saying like, be patient, you know, um, things will like things will come with time. Um, so I went to university to do uh, human biology at Loughborough, again, quite a sport unit, did quite a lot of sports science based modules. Um, and then I came to do my master's at the University of Bath under Dr. Sean Cumming. Um, and his research area is um, growth and maturation in like sport in general. Um, and my interest came from like my days in swimming where um, I'd always been a littlest on poolside and found it quite hard to compete. Um, and then I became a swimming coach and kind of saw that all the way through um, the ages. And so I kind of just had a passion for kind of talent ID, trying to rectify these kind of issues that um, come up in sport all the time. Um, and yeah, so I started my master's in 2016, I think, um, and did a year. And then I started my PhD, um, which is about the effects of growth and maturity in youth football um, on talent identification and uh, looking at coaches evaluations and selection um in a premier league football club so that's kind of what my thesis is about okay so i guess to start off with if you could define kind of what growth and maturation is um yeah. and how that affects people obviously i guess puberty and stuff will come up but how that has effects on children from the very young ages all the way through to i guess adult kind of stages yeah, so obviously all children kind of go through um, growth and development as like their normal kind of um, pathway. And uh, so growth is just like the increasing of size and structure of like limbs, general height. Um, whereas maturity is more of like a process from being a child to becoming adulthood. So there's loads of things involved in maturity. Um, skeletal maturity, sexual maturity, somatic maturity. So that's kind of more of a process rather than growth as just increasing linear height. Um, and so I wanted to look at those two um, as independent um, processes on youth athletes. So how does growth, like literally increasing in size, um, affect athletes and how does maturity? So all those different processes that are occurring at the same time um, impact children. And the thing that's interesting with growth and maturity is it's genetic. So the players um, and athletes can, can't do anything about it. They can't change it. Um, and yet it can have real implications on their like, journey in sport. 
Okay, so when we talk about um, the, the effects that it can have on on um, sport and selection of sport and stuff, on a basic level, what would that look like? Okay, so maturity, for example, so if you um, mature in advance of your peers, so you're going to be taller and stronger, faster and more powerful um, ahead of when your peers are going to achieve that. Um, and so that's like a direct effect of maturation. So if you're an early mature, you're more likely to be faster, stronger, um, you're going to be bigger, more powerful. Um, whereas a late maturer who hasn't had those physical advantages come through yet, because um, they're a little bit more behind developmentally, they're going to be a little bit smaller, weaker, slower, they're going to get pushed off the ball easy. Um, so there's like a direct effect of maturation there where early maturers are perceived as being better at sports sometimes than their late maturing peers. And so how, I guess, how, how did you find that out? How, how did you go through the process of finding out that this, this took place? Oh, so there's been years and years and years of research now um, showing um, that that's occurred in all sports where um, if you develop ahead of your peers, you're going to have these like advantages. So there's research out there, um, really good research out there that shows um, when these advantages occur. So is it before the growth spurt, after the growth spurt, um, in all sorts of different uh, physical testing. So in sprint speeds and uh, jumping and um, aerobic resistance kind of all these kind of different physical testing um, there's like a, a abundance of research that shows early maturers tend to outperform their later maturing peers and um, so my research kind of um, extends from that and tries to look at kind of different effects from that so if we know they're uh, stronger more powerful um, and uh, bigger in football and um, my research tends to look at whether can the coaches perceive that so the research that's been done before has tended to look at like 10 meter sprint um, 20 meter sprint GPS statistics. And um, I wanted to know, can the coaches perceive that difference? So when they're watching the game, does their eye detect early maturers as outperforming the later maturers? And so what did, what did your research come back with? So the first study in my PhD, I analyzed um, the match grades of um, a number of players across uh, four seasons. So we took their um, performance grade that was evaluated by their age group coach for every league game that they played in. And that was on a one to four scale. Um, so we took those grades and then we took their measure of maturity, which was percentage of predicted adult height, um, which is a, a method that um, there's loads of research on. It's called the Camus-Roach method. Um, so we took their percentage of predicted adult height and we looked at whether the coach could uh, perceive differences between the most mature on the pitch and the least mature on the pitch. Um, and we found that in most age groups, biological age um, significantly predicted um, match grades. So that means um, a more, the more mature a player was, uh, the higher their match grade the coach gave. Um, and we found chronological age, which is um, known as like the relative age effect, where within a team, there's some people that are born earlier in the year and are older um, and some people that are younger. Uh, we found that that didn't predict match grades. So it was more physical maturity. Um, the more mature you were, the higher your match grade was going to be from your coach. OK, so I'm going to come back onto the, the match grade and all that type of stuff. Could you talk through the, um, I guess, kind of bio age or maturation age we discussed and the chronological age 
um, and the maturity space and what that looks like, along with um, the, I can't remember how you just phrased it, the percentage of predicted adult height. Could you talk yeah, yeah. through and kind of explain what those look like and how those calculations are done, et cetera? Yeah, so, um, okay, so relative age is um, defined by a child's birthday within the year. So, for example, each calendar year within school and sport um, has, a, has a year for cutoff dates. So for football, it's the same as school in England. It's September to August. Um, and so if you're born in September, October or November, you're a quarter one. I'm born in April, so I'd be a quarter three. And a lot of research out there shows that in sport, the quarter one born, so all this within the age group, tend to be overrepresented um, for a number of reasons. They've been alive on the planet longer. Um, they are a little bit older. Um, so they've got more skills. They've been doing things longer. So there's loads of reasons that can be. Um, relative age effect is different to biological maturity, however. So relative age is just your birth date within the calendar year. Biological maturity is the genetic component of when your body's going to start to mature, which is um, defined like 50 to 80 percent by genetics. Um, so there's nothing you can there's nothing a child can do about either of those things when they're born or their um, biological maturity. Um, the percentage of predicted adult height is just a measure of biological age. So we take their um, current height and we work out um, we work out their future height, their adult height, um, which has some. It's an estimation equation. It has some error associated with it depending on their age, but it tends to be about two point two centimeters accurate. And then we work out their current height as a percentage of their future height. And we know from loads of research that it tends to be around. Um, like 88 to 92% where their peak height velocity will occur. So that's where their biggest increase in height would be. Um, and so we know that's like the during kind of growth age. And then you can work out where people are in their developmental pathway. Are they pre-growth spurt, during growth spurt, post-growth spurt? And also if you have two players who are um, ones at 95% of their predicted adult height and ones at 85%, you know, this one is much closer to their adult status than this one so if that makes sense okay so first question is how um how much more accurate does it get throughout the ages regarding their predicted adult height um and you know how does how young down could you go to say this is roughly what their adult height is going to be i know you've obviously said there it's between uh 2.2 centimeters error range but how as you go through the age groups and phases and stuff how much more accurate they, does that get um and i guess the the next question is what effects does um their developmental um status have on on their like physical output so if they're pre um, like puberty or during puberty or after puberty how much of an effect does that have on coordination power output all those kind of uh, factors yeah so uh, the equation you can go down and um, the research that's out there can go down as young as four um, and you can work out their predicted adult height from that data the equation takes into account the child's age um, child's age child's height and child's weight um, and then it takes into account the, their parent their parental mid-height, so that's the mum and dad divided by two. Um, you turn all those numbers together and it will spit you out a um, predicted adult height and then we work out the child's percentage from, from that. Um, and then your next question about the developmental pathway is 
there's lots of research out there again um, some really good research from um, the Cardiff group with Rodri Lloyd and John Oliver um, that will have like developmental pathways so what to train depending on where a child is within their growth spurt um, there's lots you, of could uh, you talk through that yeah so um there's definitely better people to talk you through it than me um <laughs> but there's a there's loads of research out there about um like youth athlete development plans and what to train when to train and that kind of looks at um that peak height velocity that i was talking about so the peak gain in height and weight um what's best to train around that so is it speed strength power um and yeah kind of what to target um i think what's most interesting is looking at the during the growth spurt um stage so that can be around um like 86 to like 95 percent where they're going to be in a real high stage of growth velocity so per year they're growing a lot of centimeters um that can kind of be where adolescent awkwardness kicks in and they start to lose their coordination there tends to be some dips in performance and my second study of my phd showed that that um, we took those match grades in, um, that I was talking about, in, in the league games, and their coaches were evaluating them. And anyone in that during growth spurt category tended to perform lower than they did when they were in a pre-growth. And then when they came out of that growth spurt, their grade went back up again. So it kind of formed this nice V kind of graph where during their growth spurt, they were performing much lower than they were pre-growth spurt and post-growth spurt. So there's definitely, in the, um, definitely something in the during growth spurt stage where... Uh, players tend to be losing coordination or strength, speed, power, um, because their body's going through this huge change in um, height and weight. Um, sorry, Con. Yeah, no, I was going to say, so in terms of training players at that time, as you said there, that's a lot of areas that they could potentially have deficits in or be struggling with or whatnot. So what does the research suggest that you try and work with children on during that period, I guess, uh, have a level of uh, progression but also maintain the skills that they had prior to all these changes that their body's going through yeah so i mean the research um the research is constantly changing and constantly um improving um and i think the probably the right answer would be we still are not 100 percent sure and um, there's a lot of research out there that in the growth stage um Maybe we should be bringing the players back down to like fundamental movement skills um, and basics such as balance, agility, and also to kind of take the pressure off the training load because um, a lot of players during that kind of growth spurt stage tend to come down with some growth related injuries. So there is some nice research out there suggesting that in that kind of growth, uh, growth spurt stage, um, we kind of wane back on the, the strength, speed, power training and maybe go down to balance, footwork and, and more coordination kind of skills uh, just to ease the players through that um, kind of stage. Um, and then after they've come out of that, they'll be uh, injury free, hopefully, because the training load will have been adjusted through that kind of growth stage. And then you can hit the training harder for strength, speed, power and um, post-growth. Perfect. And I, I know that obviously having worked with lads that grow quite a lot, the growth stages and phases is where they can pick up a lot of those uh, training injuries kind of what do those look like in your experiences and uh, apart from um, just decreasing load and whatnot is there anything else that people can do to assist players going through that so I think uh, probably the main thing from speaking to a lot of coaches is um, like understanding if you can understand where a player is within their developmental pathway and um, you can really help them through 
um, the journey um, better. So if we know a player is pre-growth spurt, um, we can expect these changes are still to come. So we can understand that maybe when he gets into his 14, uh, 15 year age group, these difficulties in coordination are going to come. Um, and maybe, as I say, with all children having a different journey and some developing early and some developing late, one coach is going to have a group of players that are all going to be very different. So they, they have a tough job in trying to manage um, a spectrum of players from early to, to late maturation. And that's in any age group. Um, so I think for a coach, it's about understanding what each player is um, in their group. So are they early um, or late maturer? Are they going through growth or not? Because um, that way you can really individualise their training programmes um, to better develop each player, but also remain injury free. And I, I guess, um, as you said, managing a group there, that's where your challenges come in. Because um, if you've got a early maturing Q1, so might be born first week of September, for example, and they're very yeah. early maturing compared to a very late maturing Q4, who might be, you know, July, August time, the differences yeah. between those two people or children can be quite pronounced I'm assuming yeah really big so um you can also measure maturation by looking at there's skeletal hand wrist x-ray which takes into account all the bones in the hand there's a few different methods to do it and you look at like their growth plates and the shape and size of the bones um, and the morphology of the bones um, and there's some research out there to show that for two um I think it was two nine-year-old boys um biologically they were six years different um, so two nine-year-old boys born a week apart um, had both had their x-ray taken and one boy was three years younger than where he should have been and the other boy was three years older than where he should have been. So you can imagine that on a football pitch, if you've got um, a group of 12-year-old players, the, the difference could be biologically six years between the oldest and the youngest player on the pitch. Relative age-wise with the quarters, the maximum difference is only ever going to be 12 months because of the way we group the children in sports. So the oldest could be born on September the 1st. The youngest is only going to be born a year later on August the 31st. So that is a big difference in terms of relative age, but compare that to biological age where the difference can be six years. That difference between the most mature and the least mature player can be quite substantial. And I guess linking this back to something you mentioned earlier, that's why you at times could potentially see a differences in match grades. Yeah, exactly. So, um, my third and final study of my PhD was um, a longitudinal mixed methods approach to trying to understand this kind of complex um, area. And so I interviewed some coach, some youth coaches um, and we tracked the players longitudinally over the year, um, measured their growth rate, measured their performances and um, looked at their uh, maturity. And then we three times a year spoke to the coaches about where their players were in their age group and how they were doing. Um, and yeah, coaches have a really good perception of their players without having the data. They know that that player seems to be struggling. He seems to be doing this. He seems to be doing that. Um, and there were some really interesting um, findings in that study where coaches um, could say, oh, well, I graded him this grade because he made so many mistakes or he got pushed off the ball a lot. He didn't impact the game. And all of these can be directly uh, related to maturation. So a late maturer, for example, who is small and... Um, a little bit weaker than the other players because he doesn't have the physical capability yet. Um, 
a little bit slower because he also doesn't have the physical the physicality yet. Um, they're going to find it much harder to impact a game against players that are biologically so much further ahead than them. And coaches can coaches can perceive that. Um, and so maybe grade them a little lower, whereas you're early maturing on the pitch. Um, you're taller, you're stronger, you're able to push people off the ball, um, hold your own in the game, maybe score goals, um, have an impact on the game. Coaches can perceive that and therefore grade them a little bit higher. And so the findings of that study in my PhD um, on, and the implications I mean were more, if we know this and we can see that coaches can perceive differences and um, evaluate them differently, those evaluations have a certain impact on their um, selection procedures for the club. So if coaches are going into these selection meetings for which players are going to be signed to the next level, these grades are really important. Um, and if coaches are grading late maturers lower, late maturers are going to have a much harder chance at getting to the next level of the um, academy. And so for when you're looking at that, obviously you're saying that coaches are able to perceive um, kind of perceive those differences and perceive how players are performing. Were there any recommendations about how you could counteract that? Counteract how? Um, counteract yeah, so, for example, yeah, for example, if coaches are able to perceive that a Q1 early maturer um, is, you know, able to cope with the physical demands, is able to be powerful, that type of stuff, um, and they also see that the Q4s maybe are struggling in that area. Was there any recommendations on how they could make that grading more uh, rigorous? Because obviously what we're essentially highlighting is that you've got one group of players that look particularly good because they might be that much older. Is there any way to kind of bridge that gap so the Q4s are almost getting a fairer shot? Yeah, so I think I think my main recommendation would be um, education. Um I think if coaches are educated as to which um, which players are in which kind of developmental group and also what the implications of growth and maturity are, um, I think those biases will become um, a lot less pronounced. But also, I don't um, I don't know whether the grading system does need to change. So the one to four performance grading system of how did that player perform on the pitch at that time. Um, Maybe the fact that there is a difference is a good thing in that the coaches can perceive early mature as a stronger, more physically capable um, because of their maturation and physicality. Um, but I think when we're evaluating those grades and um, we need to just put them into some sort of context. So this grade, um, you know, this average grade of 2.5 for this player for this season is 2.5 because of all these things. So it's because he's a Q4, it's because he's a late maturer. It's because he's going through some growth and he's struggling with coordination. And then this player that's a, a 3.5, well, he is a Q1. He is an early maturer. He can impact games because of all these things. So I think we just need to put these grades into context. So we can't, um, we can't argue with the fact that early maturers physically dominate football games. The GPS data shows it. Uh, the coaches' evaluations show it. We've got physical testing data, which shows early maturers outperform their late maturing peers. So there is, there is a difference in their performance, but we just need to put that difference into context. So this is why these players may be performing lower. And it's not that they're less capable, it's just that they're developmentally behind their peers. And I know um, you mentioned uh, Sean Cummins earlier on, who's done a lot of work in this area. And one of the, the things he's brought up is kind of bio-banding um, yeah. as a principle. Do you just want to talk through kind of what that process is and how... 
that's implemented maybe on a ground level? Yeah, so um, my he's my supervisor, uh, Sean, um, and he's done some really good work in biobanding across um, football and other sports as well. Um, so basically biobanding is a different way of grouping um, youth players. So as I said earlier, traditionally we group youth players in the calendar age group, so September to August or January to December, depending on what the sport is. Um, but the problem with that is you get these rigid cutoff dates of what year a, a child is in the age group. Biobanding kind of scraps the age groups and takes away those cutoff dates and you group the players according to their biological age instead. So again, we take this measurement of maturity, estimate uh, percentage of predicted adult height, and then you take, say, the under 12s to under 16s and you group the players in their percentage. So you create these bands of any player that falls between... 80 and 85% will be in this group. Any player that falls between 86 and 90% will be in this group. And you make these bands and these um, players then play together. So it kind of churns up the age group. You don't play with your normal peers. And um, you might be playing with players that are older than you, players that are younger than you. Um, and you create a new team and they play the, they play the same um, band, if that makes sense. So you create this band and then you create two teams and they will play each other in a in a game or you can use it in training. Um, and as I was saying earlier, this six year difference in biological age that can sometimes arise in a chronological age group. So in a one year age band, you get this big difference. What biobanding does is it squashes that biological age difference. So although the chronological age difference might be bigger because the birth dates are all mixed up, the biological age band will be much smaller. So it's a much fairer, even playing field on the pitch. So as a coach, when you're watching it, you can see that the players are much more aligned in terms of their physicality. And have you so there's no, that, I have, have yeah, I've been seen to that a few, in a practical setting. Yeah, I've been to a few tournaments now and a few a uh, few training sessions where it's been done. Um, I went over to US Soccer to watch a bio running tournament be done over there, um, and I've seen it in boys and girls now, and it does definitely diminish the the big differences. So you don't get this David and Goliath kind of situation where there's a player that's three foot taller than everybody else, so much stronger, um, has a beard, um, has calf muscles and really broad shoulders playing against somebody who hasn't even gone through their growth spurt yet. Um, and so, yeah, it just reduces the reduces the level um, of differences in that kind of maturation status. Um, but what I think is nice about it is I've done some research um, with Amy Spencer, a psychologist in um, academy football, um, and we looked at like how biobanding works in general as a principle because uh, there's a lot of critics out there that will argue and um, you're taking away some of the challenge for the players you're taking away some of the the normal aspects of sport that are like are normally occurring within natural games um, and so I think actually if you look at biobanding as um, a training purpose rather than a new age format that's going to take over the world um, I think if you look at it that way, it can actually really develop the players. So the late maturers that would end up moving to a younger kind of age category and playing with people that are a similar size to them. Yeah, the physical challenge has been taken away, but it gives them a chance to work on uh, leadership skills or work on their technical and tactical. And they're, they're able to show off a little bit more because the physicality is being reduced for them. And on the flip side, it, when you push those early maturers up to play with older boys who are of a similar biological maturity to them, it means they can't dominate the game. They can't push people off the ball. They really have to work on their technical and tactical skills to kind of keep up. So I think it, you know, it has a really good um, 
practice in training to kind of work on both of those things for both kind of spectrums of players. And in terms of uh, from a coach's perspective, because obviously you mentioned there's a grading system and whatnot, when you were at those events, at those games, how did it affect their perception of the players potentially? Yeah, so um, I've spoken to coaches before um, and coaches will, they'll watch their team. Um, obviously, they'll, their team of under 12s, under 13s will then be spread across multiple different age groups. So they might have to watch this, this band to see some of their players and this band to watch some of their other players. Um, and I think what's really interesting is their, yeah, their late maturers coaches will say, oh, he, you know, he thrived. He, he really found, um, found his place and he could impact the game. I've never seen him being able to impact the game like that. Um, and that's because that physicality has been taken away. And then for the, for the early maturers, sometimes that's the, you know, the top player in the age group. They're the ones that's always scoring the goals, always dominating the game. When they're pushed up into a higher age uh, bracket where they're matched with their peers, that player can sometimes struggle and, and it's because they've never had this kind of um, physical challenge for them before. And so coaches kind of can then see them in a different light and think, oh, actually, he needs to work on this now because, he's, you know, he never has to work on that in this age group because he can physically dominate. But when you get pushed up, you can kind of see uh, weaknesses show. So I think on the most part, um, the coaches I've spoken to really enjoyed it. They found it useful to see coaches, to see their players in a different light and, um, and another thing, I think the, the players, I've spoken to players about it as well. The players enjoy, it's a different game. It's a different format. They have to think differently. And the, the players quite enjoy that. They get to play with different players. Um, I've spoken to players who've said they got to learn from the older age groups. So, you know, they've never seen an under-14 play and they were able to play with an under-14 and learn from them. Um, and I've seen late maturing players say, oh, I, I've never been the captain before because they've always been the smallest, littlest in the team making them the captain in a lower uh, band was um, a big deal for them. They really enjoyed it. So I don't think it should replace um, age group practices by any means, but I do think it has a benefit in like a training evaluative tool. So obviously it seems like there's loads of positives there in terms of um, skills they're able to learn or social interactions they might not have had. When mm -hmm. critics aren't so keen on it what are the points that they push back with what do they say isn't why do they say it isn't a good idea or isn't worthwhile i've heard people say that um the you're diminishing the differences in size and um, but they're always going to be there so the main um argument would always be well Messi still made it um and yeah that is a good argument but i think most people will admit that Messi is quite a special character um and so he made it for like lots of reasons but again I think um in general there's um I've done some research um with an academy that shows um the maturity bias and relative age bias within an academy and the drop-off of late maturers after under 14s um was huge there was no late maturers in the under 14s 15s or 16s age group um and I think that's really important we're missing out on a really big pool of players um that are either being deselected from the sport um for being late maturer and they don't impact the game they can't keep up or they're deselecting themselves out for those reasons and which of that we don't know but I think there's a big pool of players there that we're missing out on so the critics that say all oh, the the cream always rises to the top like Messi still made it I think yes yeah, some still will but there's going to be a big percentage that we do lose out on um because of it 
I'm going to show you a photo and I'll put this on social media and stuff on again, which I think is a brilliant representation of some of the stuff you're discussing around. These are two under 14s out in Spain. I think if you type it in on Google, Sevilla um, and Villarreal under 14s, it's a really good thing. But the differences between these two. Yeah, I've seen that on Twitter. Yeah. And it's, yeah. I think it's a brilliant example of what you're saying of those two boys and the, the challenges that they face. Um, I, I guess, you know, you're looking at under 14s, under 15s, under 16s age group and then you're getting more towards kind of youth phase and all that type of stuff. Has there been any precedent of late maturers having real success when those differences are uh, evened out? So that picture we've got there or when you go to under 16s, if we're saying the cream always rises to the crop, have we got any examples of where actually those really late maturers have done really well when they have eventually caught up? Yeah, there's, there's so many examples. There's professional examples where players have made it who were late maturing um, and coaches also talk about it. Um, there's late maturers within academies that are brilliant, technically, tactically really capable. Um, there's some really good research out there that shows um, strength um, and physical testing data, so strength, speed, power. Late maturers eventually will catch up and if not surpass their early maturing peers. Um, so you just got to give them patience. They will they will catch up once they develop. And that's the same in um, technical and tactical proficiency. Uh, there's also data out there that shows, um, there's a research paper that shows late maturers and relative age late born players eventually earn the most money at Premier League status. Um, and the argument is that they've had more challenges, more hurdles to climb. Um, and so they've really developed as a player because of that. So it's kind of like the underdog hypothesis. They've um, they've always been like having to fight and battle. And so when they've got to the top, they've got all these um, abundance of skills um, because of it. But my argument would be, again, there's still such a big group of players that we're missing out on. Um, and so, yeah, a few did rise to the top, but it's of such a small percentage of players that have managed to remain within the system, if that makes sense. So the queen will only rise to the top if they manage to stay within an academy. But if they're being deselected out for these reasons, they're, they're going to really struggle to get back into the system at a later date. And how could you, um, how would you challenge that in a constructive way? How would you challenge that with academies or, you know, the selection across different sports? How would you challenge them to try and in, increase the level of Q3, Q4, Q4s, late maturers, et cetera, in their, in their environments? Um, I think there's probably numerous ways to do it. I think education, again, is a big one, making sure coaches and parents and players are really up to date with how um, growth and maturation can affect um, players and the coaches' experiences. Because if coaches are aware that their biases and perceptions are being changed directly because of a player's maturation, maybe they can counteract that in, in training. Um, I also think, again, biobanding is a good idea. Um, in that it gives coaches a different light to watch players in, to evaluate players in. It gives players um, the opportunity to learn new skills in a new environment and really develop. So I think that's a good thing. There's some relative age tournaments um, being conducted out and about across clubs, which is a similar premise to biobanding in that it mixes up the age groups. But they will say, you know, it'll be a Q4 tournament where all the players have to be born between June, July and August to try and ensure that these players and clubs are coming are coming through with these kind of players and not excluding them. Um, and then I think there's um, 
some really nice things to take from other countries and other sports. Um, there's the Futures program um, in like Europe and Belgium that have like a team underneath their first team for late maturers to come through at, um, which some famous Premier League players have come through where at 13, 14, 15, they weren't ready, but they were kind of kept back in uh, a Futures or a B team as such, if that's what you want to call it, where they were able to develop and come through the system. And then eventually when they did catch up, they were still within the system to, to play. I think the main problem is if the players are out of the system and excluded from the sport, it's really hard to get them back in. So if we can keep them in within the sport and keep them playing and developing, eventually they will catch up and be able to compete. Is that on a national level or is that on a team level? So that, would that be like the Belgium national team or would that be like Anderlecht, for example? Um, I, it's, I think it is run across um, nationally, um, as in multiple teams have that kind of B um, B team futures program that feeds within to the, the national team. Oh, that's cool. That's that's a really yeah. good idea. And is there any common threads um, that you see of those late maturers? Is there any common skills that they they learn at the time where maybe they they are the underdog, or any techniques or tactical stuff that they learn um, because of like their because of the nature of them being maybe physically um, weaker or slower or that type of stuff? Yeah, so um, my final study in my uh, PhD uh, talked to coaches about this kind of how they um, experienced managing um, athletes that were growing and maturing. Um, and that had some really good insights. So um, this is more from the coach's perspective rather than the player's perspective. Um, but the coaches of early maturing players found that a lot of the time they did rely on their physicality. They did rely on being physically dominant and the quickest. Um, and that was what helped them win games and compete. Uh, they tended to be the confident ones, the, the ones that would win you the games, that would lead the team. Um, and on the other hand, for a lot of the late maturing players, the coaches would say things like, um, oh, he gets pushed off the ball really easily, but technically and tactically, he's very, very clever. Game intelligence, he's very clever because he has to pick out the best person to pass to. He has to make decisions faster because he knows he's going to get beat man to man on the ground. Um, he, you know, on a foot race, the late mature is not going to win. So they technically and tactically have to be better. Psychologically, the late maturers are sometimes more resilient. Um, the coaches say, you know, they face a lot of challenges every day. And so they they tend to keep going and battling. Like um, one, one coach says late maturers are like terriers and that they just keep going and going and going. Whereas a lot of the coaches for the early maturers sometimes said, you know, when he faces a challenge, he's not he's not capable of getting over it. You know, if he's had a bad start to a game, that's that's it for the game. Um, and they they put that down to the fact that they don't face challenge very often, that they tend to always be succeeding because of their uh, size and maturity. Um, so there were some really interesting things. A lot of the a lot of the late maturers um, were used to were used to being the physically dominant ones, and so found it particularly challenging when the late maturers caught up. And how can how can we help the early maturers? Because like you said there, if they're used to being more physically dominant, obviously they, they probably have more time on the planet, so they're able to practice more, all that type of stuff. How can we assist them? Because um, I guess it's just important. We want them to have those challenges or those rocky road experiences so they do learn, you know, that failure is really important and that you can learn from failure and all that type of stuff. What type of processes could we play, put in place to assist them? Yeah, exactly. I think um, it's really important for both um, 
the early mature, early maturers and the late maturers to be uh, challenged equally. Um, but within a normal games programme, it does seem to be that the late maturing players are the ones that are challenged more. So the way to combat that would be um, push the early maturers up, make them play with the age group above more often if it's physically um, and psychologically suitable. So if a player can cope with that kind of pressure and challenge um, and they're physically capable of playing in the age group above, um, maybe a few training sessions, a few games they play up. Um, Biobanding again, they're forced to they're forced to learn a new environment because they're playing with more physically capable players. And I think even simple things such as in training, maybe putting more restrictive drills on them. So if they are going to stay within the age group, don't partner the earliest maturer with the latest maturer because they're going to win every battle. They're going to find it really easy. Um, so you maybe make more restrictive. So you partner the earliest maturer with the next earliest maturer uh, to give them more challenge on a daily basis. Um, and also you say, you know, you, you can't score um, can't score with your right foot today. Because um, if that's what they always do and they're so capable of doing that, you know, you, you score with your left foot today only to kind of give them that extra dimension of they're going to have to keep thinking, keep working on different skills and, and drills and tactics um, on a daily basis. Because that is what the late maturers are doing all the time. They're having to adapt uh, to just survive. So the late maturers need to be, yeah, maybe restricted, extra challenge, add that different dimension in to keep their their development going and is are these effects and whatnot something you've seen across continents because i know that when for example when we go out to um tournaments abroad they often go january to december and that can present a different set of challenges because all of a sudden you've gone from being maybe older than all the teams there whereas if you take out all your q1s all of a sudden you're one of the youngest groups there um, and I know that's yeah. something we're speaking to a lot of English academies. That's something that's interesting when you go abroad because you end up going from being, you might have a dis, uh, September player or a load of September players to then none of them being allowed to play. So then you, you've you got loads of September the other end and then nine months uh, yeah. younger and all that type of stuff. Is it something that you've seen across continents and across um, Europe and whatnot? Yeah, so generally coaches tend to say the same um, the same kind of um, thing. Um, what's interesting about across countries, if they do change the calendar date, they tend to get the same problem. It's just a different one. So our cutoff date is September to August. So our Q4s will be June, July, August. And there tends to be less of them. We, they're definitely underrepresented in academy football in England. But in other countries, if, if their cutoff date is January to December, their October, November, December players, there tend to be a lot less of. So they, they have the same problem, it's just being changed. So there was a lot of research out there about to get rid of the relative age effects, maybe we change the cutoff dates. But if you change the cutoff dates, you just get the same problem, but at a different time of year. Um, so I think that's really interesting in that it just, that kind of relative age effect is so persistent in that the older players will still tend to dominate no matter where they are. It's just, wherever the cutoff date is kind of um lends itself to that which kind of happens regardless and what are the effects of this on on different sports because if you look at a sport like rugby for example if we go back to that six-year differential that we spoke about earlier in a mm -hmm. contact sport such as that that can be really challenging so how does it change from from sport to sport in terms of the effect that it might have 
yeah, so my research has definitely dominated in football, but I've spoken to other researchers um, and my research group who do things in other sports. Um, rugby tends to have very, very few late maturers within the system just because the sport doesn't lend itself to having um, late maturers for exactly what you said, the physical contact reasons. Um, I think that the thing with football is it is quite um, an early specialisation sport, so we do tend to have the children coming in quite early. Um rugby from speaking to a few people you know players can still join quite late so the late maturers may get in at an older age um which appears less so in in football um and then other sports um it does depend on what the sport kind of um allows so as i say like contact sports like rugby for example boxing any kind of martial art kind of sport um they would be grouped in weight categories anyway so that kind of big physical difference is taken away for safety reasons, mainly. Um, they wouldn't fight under nines to under nines. It would be whoever was in the same weight category. So that kind of makes that fairer. Um, there's definitely relative age effects in, in other sports. We've seen it in tennis and swimming. Um, so it is kind of like a talent identification issue across numerous sports. And I guess on a talent identification level, um obviously this is really challenging for you know scouts if you're looking at people going out and watching or selectors if you're looking at tennis or swimming and stuff like that to go around and go oh, I know that person's born September the 1st or I know that person's August born and that can be difficult to know where people are along their journey how could we counteract this on a kind of grassroots basic level so that we try and even the playing fields more so there's more of a spread out over an entire year. Yeah, so there's things that uh, there's things that can be done. So for like relative age effects, there's some really good research out there, um, where they had they bid the players in order of age. Um, so the oldest player that was born in September had a number one on his bib, and the youngest player was had an eleven. So that kind of visual cue for the coach throughout training in the game, he was always aware that oh that player's the youngest, that player's the oldest. Um, so I think that's a really good idea because it's a constant reminder because um, I appreciate with coaching, it's so hard. Um, I'm a swimming coach and I forget all the time. It's so hard when you're in in the process of coaching to try and keep that kind of um, mind process going of he's the oldest, he's the youngest, he's the most mature, he's growing. Um, there's so many uh, complex things happening all at one go. Um, so I think that kind of visual cue is a really nice reminder that, you know, who's the oldest, who's the youngest. And you can do that for maturity as well. So work out who's the most mature to the least mature and you can visually order them and kind of make a difference that way. Also, there's things like visual cues anyway. So in terms of maturity for football, um, a lot of the coaches say they use like, you know, the earliest maturer has a beard. It's quite obvious that he's going to be the most maturing um, compared to the youngest maturing who's got no facial hair. Uh, really small really slender so there's visual cues that coaches can use to kind of work out um where the players are in the spectrum um so i think that's really important but again i just think it's it's education and um, i think once everyone is on kind of like the same page in scouting and and coaching we can kind of make some progress in that you know players shouldn't be deselected or um overlooked because of where their birth date falls or where they are in their maturity status um again that's something that a player can't do anything about and how's this affected your coaching how's this research <laughs> affected the um, way you act 
Yeah, so as I say, like, as I've been talking to football coaches about, like, perceptions, biases, experiences, um, they're, they're not a bad thing. You can't you can't take those things away. We just have to make more educated decisions. So, um, yeah, I'm a swimming teacher and a swimming coach. Um, and, yeah, I tr- the thing is, it's, it's a bit different to football swimming. So swimming's um, a, a speed sport, so it's who's the first to the wall, who is going to win the medals, uh, rather than in football where you can have, like, you know, a really technical, tactical player. Um, and in a team game swimming tends to be an individual sport and it's who's the fastest to the wall so again the early maturers do still tend to dominate because they can thrash through the water they're bigger faster stronger they can get to the other side faster um, but I think for me it's all about technique so you know if those late, late maturers can really refine their technique you know refine those skills eventually they they will catch up so it's about keeping them in the keeping them in the sport um, for a lot longer and again reminding those early maturers that you know you are going to get caught so keep going with your technique keep going with learning those tumble turns those dives to try and get those extra gains because eventually at 17 18 maturity is not going to matter anymore so it's just such like growth maturity stuff is going to affect such a small stage of an athlete's pathway um, that I think it it really matters to try and kind of remove those biases because when they're an adult no one's going to care if they were a late mature. It's if they were still, it's if they're still there or not. And would you frame it to your kids or the kids um, that you're working with or have seen? Do you think the framing of it as a coach is important? Yeah, I think so. And I also think um, most kids are very aware anywhere, anyway. Like, as I say, I was a swimmer who was who was the smallest on the pool side. I knew that. I was very aware that when I stood on the diving blocks, ready to go in a race, that I was going to come out of the dive already behind um, because the girls were much stronger and faster than me. Um, So I think it's about like keeping um, their confidence up, keeping those late maturers interested. um, Because for a lot of late maturers in any sport, if they are struggling and they're getting beat a lot, you know, most competitive children don't, you know, don't enjoy losing. So it's about keeping their confidence, keeping them, um, keeping them enjoying it and wanting to carry on participating so that when they do come through, and um, you know they're going to be able to compete so yeah I kind of frame it as um you know have patience it will come keep working hard you'll get there um, and the same for those early maturers you know just because it's easy now doesn't mean it's always going to be easy so keep working on your techniques your drills to, to kind of remain competitive and um, have you seen any of this linked to like um I know there's there's research going into what effect birth order or having siblings and stuff has uh, the classic example is Michael Jordan, for example, I think was the youngest of three brothers used to get beaten up in the backyard and all of a sudden went for a growth spurt and then was able to beat all of his brothers. Do you, have you done any crossover between that and seen the effects of potentially uh, what birth order can have in the resilience and the social skills and the physical development, et cetera? Yeah. So not, like any hard research as such like anecdotally talking to coaches and then um, parents and stuff yeah but no like hard research um but again I think most people have a, I've got an older brother um who kind of taught me to swim um to some extent and we're quite competitive and I always wanted to beat him and he was four years older so you know I always had to strive to kind of to beat him so I think there's lots of anecdotal stories that kind of can prove that um across sport but I think yeah there's so many things that go into talent identification and obviously growth maturation and relative age effects is just is just one of them um birth order is one where you live can even be one 
um, access to sport. There's loads of things. So, you know, growth and maturation is not the be all and end all, but I think it's a really important part at these youth stages that we can kind of educate coaches and parents and, and the players to a certain extent to try and kind of better develop and um, improve the talent pathway. Um, but yeah, I think the first order stuff is so interesting, the, um, the effects that that can have on like athlete development is so cool. And if we're talking about uh, like grade A, the, the, the best put in practice plan that you could produce or have to help this kind of growth and maturation stuff have the, the smallest amount of impact on development pathways and give everyone like a fair opportunity and stuff, what would that look like for you in a practical context? <laughs> That's a really hard question. Um, one more thing for my PhD that I haven't touched upon um, is that it's really hard to do this in an elite environment, um, such as a, a Premier League academy. Um, you know, players and coaches want to win games. And um, although an academy football and youth sport shouldn't necessarily be about winning as such all the time, um, obviously winning is an important part, but it should be more about, be about athlete development. I think that kind of elite environment and competitive environment just exacerbates these growth and maturity kind of effects. So, for example, the late maturer that is smaller, uh, slighter, struggling with strength, speed, power, maybe even going through their growth spurt when all their peers are through it and have got all these physical advantages. That player, um, from talking to coaches and the evidence I've got in my PhD, tends to sit on the bench because he's not going to impact the game. He's not going to help them win the game. So we're not going to play him. But that player is then not um, not learning anything. He's not achieving anything, sat on the bench. Um, and so I think the main thing that I would say to answer your question is, is, again, education. I feel like I've said that a lot. But that player is not going to learn anything, sat on the bench. And, you know, he may come on for the last 10 minutes when the game's done and dusted. Um, but how's that going to benefit them? Um, and, you know, big games, big um, gold standard games that are really important to the win um, I understand that, but that player is then never going to have had that kind of cup final experience because they're never going to be on the pitch. Um, and then eventually when they're 2021 20, and they've made it to pro because they've eventually come through and kind of persisted, they're not going to have had any experience at high pressure games um, and they're not going to have learned those skills. So I think academy football and youth sport in general, um, the kind of competitive element takes away the development of the players. Does that make sense? And so... I think the growth and maturity stuff, we know there's these physical differences in their capabilities and we can see with all the research that's out there that, yeah, the early maturers are faster, stronger, they're going to impact the game more. Um, and so we keep playing them, but these late maturers are not going to get a fair share of development and learning and, and their chance to kind of shine if the competitive element is always at the forefront of the coaches and the clubs and the uh, youth sport programs mind so I think my main thing would be education and um, keeping the coaches and the players and the parents um, all on the same um, page in that we're developing the players and we're getting them all all capable of playing first league football whether they're early mature as late mature as q1s q4s and um, because you know that's the only way we can make sure they all make it I guess that's that's a challenge that isn't just kind of at academy level that goes right the way down to grassroots because if you've got a cup final and you're you know if 
say for example you're an under 12 team you've got your cup final and you've got a choose choice between these two players it's nature that people want to win yeah. and quite often yeah. the, you know that that kid will get left on the bench it doesn't matter kind of what level of sport you play at yeah. um, I've got a bit of a hypothetical for you in, in terms of your <laughs> research if there was an academy who <laughs> twisted everything on and went you know what we're going to really try and select Q3s and Q4s um, and we appreciate that in the short term this is going to provide a lot of challenges and potentially we're not going to win a lot in terms of performance wise and stuff long term how do you think a group like that would develop do you think they would still you'd need those q1s q2s to give them a strenuous training environment or do you think the subjection to games which is going to challenge them would be enough for them to then develop and maybe equal out some of the the um, disparity that we see at the moment? I think that's a whole new research question that somebody should do. Um, I think that, yeah, like, why not? Um, there, there's probably data out there that shows the Q4s are better for playing against Q1s and learning against Q1s and late maturers are better for playing with um, early maturers. And I understand that. Um, but I think the problem with the current system in some ways is that um, it doesn't allow for the late maturers and the Q4s to stay within the system. Um, so I think, yeah, an academy that kind of retained these late maturers, retained these Q4s, um, and yeah, you know, they can still play against Q1 players um, in other teams maybe and still play against early maturers. Um, and equally, you know, like um, training programmes like biobanding and the relative age um, kind of competitions kind of allow that kind of to take place anyway. Um, so I think, yeah, why not? There's, you know, Q4s have made it, it shows in the Premier League that there's loads of Q4s in there, loads of late maturers eventually make it. But at the youth level, when you look at descriptive statistics of what's within the youth academy level, there are not many Q4s or late maturers retained. Um, and so there's definitely like a loss of a big pool of players that we can't select from um, because they're just not in the game anymore. So an academy that will retain those kind of players and allow them to develop, give them that time and patience to get there, you know, maybe they'll come through and kind of prove that, you know, eventually it doesn't matter. It, it might be interesting as well if you had that group who then played between age groups. So say, for example, you've got under, they're technically under 13s. Yeah. In terms of thing, but they're only two or three months older than the under 12s. So they yeah. actually play half their fixtures against under 13s, half their fixtures under 12s. It'd be interesting to see then what the disparity would be because they might struggle a lot against the 13s, but do really well against the under 12s. And then you'd be like, okay, so maybe actually when you put them in an environment that's more equal, we're seeing yeah. that there's some really good bits from them. Exactly. And we, you know, we see that in biobanding. We see players... Um, I've got a story about uh, under 13 um, who was the latest maturer within the group and born the last day in August. So that's a pretty double whammy of, um, you know, negatives. He was the youngest chronologically by far and the youngest biologically by far um, and struggled day to day in training, struggled in competitions. Um, and when they put him in a biobanded tournament, um, he was playing with 12 and 11 year olds because that's how biologically much younger he was. 
So yeah, he was he was the older, uh, the oldest in the group, and all the coaches kind of focused in on, well, he's the oldest now, he's the oldest now. But he was actually still biologically in the middle of the group because of how the group worked. And yeah, he was the oldest, but because he was born so so late in August, he was only the oldest by a few days because some of the most of the kids within the group were born in September. So he'd gone to the old, he'd gone from being the youngest by months to being the oldest by a few days. So um, I think it's really important to kind of look at the context. Um, and he he played really, really well in this biobanded tournament. The coaches couldn't believe it. He shone. Um, but again, it was, oh, well, he is still the oldest, but he was only the oldest by a few days now, um, rather than being the youngest by a few months. But it definitely kind of turned a light on in some coaches' heads where they were like, oh, okay, you know, he's not struggling as much as we thought he was because when you play him in the right environment he he coped fine so it seems like um the, the big thing you're preaching here is kind of education and people making themselves more educated on the matter and then just consideration for individuals look at where they are in their development pathway be it are they really early maturers are they really late maturers what does their growth look like and actually accepting that you know if they're going through growth there might be a few occasions where they fall over their own legs or they kick the ground or do a few air shots but if we can help them work through that with the ball mastery type stuff and coordination type stuff that you can get through that phase with, with some good gains and whatnot yeah exactly i think that's perfect i think um it's just all context um i mean i've been studying this area for four years now and i'm by no means by no means an expert. I think there's so much more to learn. Um, and yeah, the coaches have been, the coaches I've worked with have been brilliant. Um, and yeah, I just think it's all about the, the context and situation, learning what's best for each player, what each player needs at each kind of moment in their pathway. Because as you say, you can be early maturing and a Q1, but also be struggling with your growth spurt and, you know, falling over, kicking the, kicking the floor and struggling with injuries. So, you know, even if on paper you're the oldest and the earliest and it seems to be easy, you can still be struggling with your growth spurt and um, things like that. And so I think there's so many factors and concepts to, to look at. So kind of just looking at the bigger picture, really, I think is the best answer. Perfect. I'm going to disallow you from saying your supervisor on this last question. But okay. um, the, apart from him, who's the... The most impressive person that you've worked with this in in this area and why? <laughs> um, okay, so Bob Molina um, is a researcher uh, over in America. He's in Texas, um, and I met him at a tournament in U.S. soccer. Um, and he was he's produced numerous research papers um, on the kind of subject area more generally of growth and maturation in children, um, and narrowed down into kind of sport. Um, and he's very, very educated, um, very clever, very nice to talk to. Um, and yeah, had some really good insights into what he thought was um, what was best. So I'd say his papers are definitely worth looking up. Um, and obviously, I can't say my supervisor, but yeah. <laughs> no, for those who don't know, obviously, Sean's real forefront of a lot of this work and has done a lot of papers over the years kind of been a big advocate of the bioband and stuff and uh, if people are interested in it he's definitely one I'd, I'd recommend to go and have a look at the work he's done and I'm sure you would as well. Yeah and um, the research group um, at Bath there's numerous researchers coming out of it that have done work in other football clubs and um, in ballet and gymnastics and tennis so it's not all just in football. 
Perfect. Listen, Megan, I really appreciate your time. And I think obviously it's been very educational for, um, for, for a lot of us and a lot of considerations to go and work, work with the children on. And um, yeah, just great way to consider coaching. So thanks very much and then catch up with you soon. Thanks for having me. Thanks for listening to the Sports Initiative podcast with me, Michael Wright. Please remember to follow us on Twitter, Facebook and Instagram at the Sports Initiative podcast and share this podcast with friends and family. I'll see you next week.